We're going to jump straight in this morning because we have a lot that we're going to get through in today's message. We're going to cover the whole Old Testament this morning. So uh, strap yourselves in. Hope you brought a lunch. Because, uh, no, it's all right. We'll, we'll still stick to our time frame roughly, uh, but we do have a lot of content to get through. We're doing this series, which is called Epic, where we're walking through God's big story. And uh, so we're taking some time to recognize that our belief is that God's big story, which unfolds through the pages of the Bible, is the one that helps us to be able to find a sense of meaning and a sense of purpose in our lives. And so, so far, we've looked at the first two episodes of God's story. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about episode one, which we called Designed, where we said that we're created for a purpose. And that purpose is for us to be in a full, complete relationship with God, with each other, and to look after the creation that he has given to us. And a key word that we used when we talked about all of that was the word peace, life the way that it's supposed to be, that sense of everything being right in our relationships, in the way that we experience life. That's what God created us for. And so we had this beautiful picture of what humanity was like at the beginning with God, where there was a sense of intimacy, a sense of nothing to hide, a sense of closeness and interdependence. But then last week we looked at episode two, which we called Broken. And the key phrase that we talked about last week is that when we choose selfishness, it leads to brokenness. When we choose selfishness, it leads to brokenness. And so we talked about the reality that we chose to walk away from God's best And that when we choose to do that, when we choose to say, I want things my way, that introduces brokenness in our relationship with God and it introduces brokenness a lot of the time in our relationships with each other as well. And so because of that, we experience a whole bunch of things in our lives, a sense of shame, embarrassment. We start to point the finger at other people and blame them for what's going on instead of living in these amazing relationships that we were created to live in. But we finished up last week recognising that even though we walked away from God's best, God didn't give up on us. He stayed faithful to us. He gently comes searching for us to be able to say, what's going on? Why have you walked away from my best? And so if you haven't been around the last couple of weeks and you want to catch up on what we've been talking about, uh, then you can have a listen to our messages on our website, on our Facebook page, or you can subscribe to our podcast and uh, you can catch up to all of the messages that way. So today's uh, episode is called Expectant, and the tagline for this is that we know that there's more to life. We recognise that all of us, baked within us, believe that we're created to connect to something bigger than ourselves, that life is not just about what we experience, there's something else, something greater, and all of us have this yearning for more. We also all know that life is not supposed to be about selfishness and brokenness. We know that there's something inherently wrong when we experience those things in our lives. And so we crave things being made right. We crave a sense of justice, especially when people get hurt. But we also often chase after things that ultimately don't satisfy us. And all of us at different times would recognise that we've tried to find meaning and purpose in other things and recognise ultimately it wasn't enough. And so all of us have that sense of expectancy, this sense of expectancy that there's something bigger than ourselves, this sense of expectancy that life is supposed to be about more than us experiencing hurt and brokenness, but also this sense of expectancy that things need to be made right somehow. And so that's what we're going to unpack. 
as we go through and look at the story of the Old Testament today. So inside of Caring Connection, you have your teaching notes as always, and so you can jot down any thoughts that you might have as we go through today's message. Uh, but you've also got the Q&A sheets inside of Caring Connection, and so my encouragement, as it has been all the way through this series, is to have that out with you, have it in your hand with a pen, and if there's any questions that you have, anything that doesn't make sense, anything that you want to challenge, anything that you want to explore further, jot those down, because at the end of this series, we're going to do a Q&A Sunday where we're going to unpack the questions that come out of the series and I know that there's no chance that in four or five weeks time we're going to remember things that we talked about this week so we want to capture all of those today and you can drop them in the Q&A box at the back of the chapel on your way out today. So let's run through the Old Testament including some of the key characters that are there. Our understanding is that the Bible is not one book. The Bible is actually a library, effectively, of 66 books that are all sorts of different types of literature. And so we have books that are narratives, we have books that are biographies, we have books that are prophecies, we have books that are poetry. Uh, we have all sorts of different literature that make its way through the pages of uh, the Bible. And there's 66 books in total, and the Old Testament is the first 39 of those books. All of the books that take place before Jesus arrives, from Genesis, the first book of the Bible that we've had a look at over the last couple of weeks, all the way through to the book of Malachi. And in lots of ways, the story of the Old Testament is actually the story of what happens when we continually choose to walk away from God's best. It's this beautiful case study in what happens to us as humans when we over and over again choose selfishness and say we want things our way instead of the way that God created for us. But the Old Testament is also this beautiful story of God's faithfulness to us, of God not giving up on us, of God not turning his back on us. And through all of that, this growing expectation that at the right time, God is going to do something, that someone is going to come and once and for all, make us right with him and allow us to experience life the way that we were created to live. So obviously, we're not going to be able to get through all of the Old Testament in detail just this morning. So I want to pull out a few key characters and a few key moments that unfold throughout the Old Testament. And we're going to start with this key guy whose name is Abraham. When we first encounter Abraham, his name is actually Abram, uh, and God chooses this man, Abram, to say, I'm going to journey with you and your family to help you understand what it looks like to live the way that you were created to live, in a right relationship with me and in a right relationship with each other. And so we're going to journey together in a fantastic relationship. And so this guy, his name is Abram, gets his name changed to Abraham, which means the father of many. And we see that happen a lot throughout the Bible where people's names are changed so that uh, they can better reflect the character that they have or something about who they are and who they're going to be. And so this guy is Abraham, the father of many, the guy who the song Father Abraham is all about. You know the one. You remember when you are a kid? Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. Come on, you know it. I am one of them and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord, right arm. Okay, so you're welcome. That's going to stick with you through the rest of the message. But that's this Abraham. And God promises to this man that through his family, he's going to bless the whole world. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we read, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your relatives, and your father's home, and go to a land that I'm going to show you. I'll give you many descendants and they will become a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name famous so that you will be a blessing. 
I'll bless those who bless you, but I'll curse those who curse you. And through you, I will bless all of the nations. And so this guy, Abram, must have been a pretty big shot, right? For God to choose him to say, you're the one who I'm going to invest all of my time in, the person I'm going to journey with, must have been someone who's really, really significant. Actually, no. And this is one of the other things that we see unfold throughout the Old Testament. Abraham is just this ordinary, everyday guy who doesn't really actually belong anywhere, just kind of roaming around the place. But God uses him in the same way as God uses a lot of other people to say, it's not actually about you having it all together. It's about what I can do through you when you're willing to surrender your life to me. And so God forms this covenant with Abraham. And a covenant is kind of like a contract, but a contract is a really weak version of what that looks like. A covenant is an agreement between two or more parties, but generally between two parties. And it's a binding agreement that, particularly when we read about it through the pages of Scripture, is about what it looks like to live at peace with one another. To say, this is what I'm going to do, this is what the other person's going to do, so that we can live in a healthy relationship, have a sense of partnership, work together so that we can live at peace with one another. And so God makes this covenant with Abraham to say, we're going to work together, we're going to form a partnership where we're going to give you the opportunity to experience peace, to experience life the way that it's supposed to be. And so God promises Abraham that his descendants, his family, his extended family would then become this huge blessing to the whole world, an opportunity for us to experience God's original design as we live that out and journey together. So from there, we have this beautiful picture of Abraham as a man of faith, a man who trusts in God, who trusts God to just pack up and follow where God is going to lead him to go. A number of other amazing stories that we don't have time to get into today where Abraham shows how much he trusts God. Ultimately, Abraham has a son whose name is Isaac, and then Isaac has a son whose name is Jacob. And Jacob is one of the most deceptive, manipulative, lying people that you could ever imagine around the place. He's this guy who does a whole bunch of really, really dirty stuff so that he can get his own way. And it's staggering, really, because Jacob ends up having this huge wrestling match with God, and God changes his name to Israel. And the word Israel actually means one who wrestles with God. That's why his name was changed. But Jacob becomes Israel, who is the Israel who begins the Israelites, this group of people from Abraham's line, who then are the people that we journey with through the rest of the Old Testament. Jacob, Israel, has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel, Israel, who become the Israelites, which is really, really fascinating as well. The Israelites is the group of people who wrestle with God which is really what we see unfold through the pages of Scripture. One of those sons is a guy named Joseph, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, that Joseph. And uh, Joseph is one of Jacob, Israel's favourite sons, uh, but his other brothers are very jealous of him. And so he ends up getting sold into slavery uh, and then out of that ends up emerging into this amazing position of influence in Egypt. He basically ends up running the whole country. There's a huge famine where Jacob and his family are, and so they end up coming to Egypt. And so as we get to the end of Genesis, that's where things have landed, that they have moved to Egypt, they're growing and expanding as a nation, as a group of families that are getting bigger and bigger. But at this point, things take a turn for the worst. 
Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, sees this massive group of people and thinks that would be a really great workforce. These people would really help us get some stuff done. And so all of the Israelites end up in slavery. And so another character emerges whose name is Moses, key guy who is given the opportunity uh, to be the one who God uses to rescue his people from slavery. Moses is born as an Israelite, but his mother, so that Moses doesn't end up being a slave, ends up putting him into a hidden place where he's found by one of Pharaoh's daughters. And so Moses grows up as a part of the royal family, but he's torn as he lives his life, torn between these two identities that he's got, knowing that he comes from an Israelite heritage, but also knowing that he's one of Pharaoh's sons and that he is effectively a prince. One day he sees one of the Egyptians abusing one of the Israelites and he just loses it and he ends up killing the Egyptian. He obviously feels pretty bad about that, but the next day he feels worse about it because he encounters some of the other Israelites who say, have you come to kill us in the same way as you killed that Egyptian? So now he's really torn because not only has he done this bad thing, killed an Egyptian, but instead of being raised, you think the Israelites would say, oh, thank you, someone who's standing up for us, they turn on him as well. And so Moses says, I'm done with all of this. And he goes out into the wilderness. He escapes and says, I'm just going to leave. I'm just going to go and look after sheep and live my life and everything will be great. But in that really, really dark place, God meets him. And God speaks to him through a pretty significant experience where he sees a bush that is on fire but isn't burning up and speaks with the voice of God to him who tells him that he's going to rescue the Egyptians. And so Moses says, fantastic, that's what I've been hoping would happen with my life. No, that's not what he says at all. He says, pick anyone else. I'm not able to do this. I don't speak very well. You Surely you've got the wrong guy. Like, pick anyone else. But God is able to use Moses to amazingly rescue the people from slavery in Egypt. Charlton Heston then comes along and takes the Israelites through the Red Sea, and that's a beautiful thing, of course. And so they escape from slavery. And so we think at this point everything's going to go really, really great. But as we then journey through the rest of the Old Testament, we see the Israelites starting to chase after three key things. And we want to keep reminding ourselves that God's original design was for us to live with love at the centre of who we are a loving relationship with God, a loving relationship with each other. But instead of pursuing love, the Israelites chase after three key things, laws, land, and leaders. I think if we can just pursue these things, if we can just have people tell us what to do, or if we can just get ourselves in the right environment, or if we can just have a set of leaders who show us the way to live, everything will be absolutely perfect. But that doesn't work either. They discover that those things ultimately don't satisfy in any way. So let's unpack each of these. First of all, laws. They think if God will just tell us how to live, everything will be great. And so they end up getting the Ten Commandments. What's at the core of the Ten Commandments? Well, the first five are about what it means to love and honour God. The second five are about what it means to love and honour the people around us. At their core, the Ten Commandments are still about love. But the Israelites, as all of us do, find loopholes around these laws that they've been given. And rather than saying, great, that's how we're going to live, they choose to find their way around it. And so more and more laws are added to address the loopholes that are created. 
But then if they find their ways around those, and so more laws are added, and more laws, and more laws, and more laws. And so instead of being focused on what it means to live out of a posture of love, they're focused on what do we have to do, and what do we have to not do? What are the rules that we have to follow? Now, the laws sometimes get a little bit of a hard rap, but it's actually really, really amazing when you unpack what's in the law compared to other belief systems of the time, that they are incredibly radical in the sense particularly of the way in which the laws take care of people who are on the margins, people who are on the fringes, people who are excluded, people who are poor, the place of women, but also focusing on generosity, focusing on equality, sharing resources. This stuff is absolutely radical for its time. But within the law, something else develops, the idea of a sacrificial system. The recognition that selfishness ultimately leads to brokenness, as we've talked about, especially in our relationships. And when people hurt each other, particularly when people hurt each other physically, we know that there's a sense of justice that needs to be served. There's something in us that just says, yes, we can't just let things slide. Something has to be done to deal with this. And so the sacrificial system was partly about the reminder that brokenness taken to its fullest extent leads to death. That ultimately, if we choose selfishness over and over enough, and if we experience brokenness over and over enough, it leads to the place of death. But the sacrificial system was also God's way of reminding us of his faithfulness and his forgiveness. God's way of saying, all of that's true, but through this system, the penalty can be paid. It can be dealt with once and for all, and so no longer do you have to hold on to that. You're able to move on. We're going to come back and talk about that more when we get to Jesus, obviously, because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice and Jesus does away with the sacrificial system. But it's helpful for us to recognise that in searching for these laws, God takes something that's imperfect, laws instead of love, and he uses them to be able to help them understand the final consequences of us choosing selfishness, but also giving us an opportunity to see a way out of that, to say that doesn't have to be the end of the story. There is a way to experience faithfulness and forgiveness. So the Israelites chase after laws and find that ultimately that doesn't satisfy. So then they chase after land. They think if we can just end up in this promised land that God has told us everything's going to be perfect. So if we can end up in this beautiful land where we've got everything that we need, we will live in a great relationship with God, with each other. We'll live at peace the way that we're supposed to. Right? No. That's not what happens. Same as what we looked at last week. In the beautiful place where they've got more than they can possibly need, what do they start doing? Looking around at what everyone else has, all of the other nations around them, and say, well, we want a bit of what they've got. We want to adopt some of their practices. We want to adopt some of their gods and some of their worship things. We want to be able to be like them. What we've got isn't enough. So it comes back again to this challenge of whether we practice gratitude being thankful for what we have, or whether our focus is always on what everyone else has. But this mindset of saying, if I can just get myself into the right environment, if I can just get the land right, everything's going to be great, is another thing that falls short. Ultimately, it doesn't satisfy, and they look for other things as well. And so thirdly, they then say, well, let's have some leaders. If we have some people who rule us and show us how we're supposed to live, everything will be great. And in particular, this is one of the things that the Israelites see in the nations around them. 
they think all of these other nations have kings and they're doing pretty well, so we should have a king as well. If we have a king, preferably a king who's like really, really good looking, really handsome, really strong, someone who's an amazing soldier, really, really wise, if we have someone like that to rule us, everything's going to be really, really great. And God challenges them and says, well, that's not what my best is. My best is just living in a relationship with me. It's as simple as that. You don't need someone else to tell you how to live. Just follow the instructions that I have given you. But they keep pushing and saying, no, we want a king like everybody else. And so God ultimately gives them a king. And what's fascinating is yet again, God takes something that's imperfect, the idea of kingship, and through Jesus transforms that so that we can see what an ultimate king looks like and what an ultimate kingdom ends up looking like, even though it was never God's best. It's really, really fascinating. Again, we'll come back to that. So the Israelites get their king. They get this man named King Saul, this big, strong, powerful king who's an amazing soldier, and everything's really, really great for them, right? No, of course not. He ends up letting his ego get the best of him. He lets jealousy get the best of him. Everything goes sideways. So they get another king. But this time, it's someone who's the least likely. In fact, when they go looking for a new king to replace Saul, they go to a number of different families and they go to one family in particular and they say, so do you have anyone who would fit the criteria of being a king? And so this man named Jesse brings out all of his sons and there they all are and then one after another, no, that's not the right one, that's not the right one and so he ends up saying, well, that's it. There's no one else. And so he's challenged. And so, are you sure you don't have any other sons? He's like, oh, yeah, that's right. There is one more. I forgot about him. He's out looking after the sheep out in the paddocks. Little David, but he couldn't be the king. He's just this little shepherd boy over there. And yet, ultimately, he's the one who God uses to put into a place of being this amazing king. This one who we're told is a man after God's own heart. And so David does a lot of really great stuff. But David also does some really, really dumb stuff and causes a significant amount of pain as well. But through David, there's then this promise that through David's line, which traces its way all the way back to Abraham, ultimately this person was going to come who would be called the Messiah, the saviour, the rescuer, the one who was going to finally once and for all put things right. So the Israelites pursue all of these other things land, laws, leaders, instead of just living the way that God created them to live. And they end up having more and more kings, things get worse and worse, the kingdom ends up getting split, and everything is a complete mess. And as I think through the Old Testament, and I was was preparing for this week, I was thinking about this again, at what point, if you were God, would you not just say, I'm done, I'm done with all of this, this is ridiculous. Just think about all of this from God's perspective. He creates humanity for one simple reason, so that we can live in a relationship with him and with each other. It's as simple as that. Just love each other. That's all that you need to do. And what do we say? Thanks, but no thanks. So God gives us some more clear guidelines about that. The Ten Commandments. Here's clarity about what it looks like to live the way that I created you to live. And what do we say? Thanks, but no thanks. God then gives us a way of understanding the consequences of us choosing to walk away from his best. God gives us a way of understanding the forgiveness that he wants to give us. And what do we say? Thanks, but no thanks. 
God gives us a promised land, everything that we could possibly need so that we can live and flourish. And what do we say? Thanks, but no thanks. God says, live as my people. You don't need a king. And what do we say? Thanks, but no thanks. God gives us a powerful king. So everything's going to be great, right? What do we say? Thanks, but no thanks. God then gives us a beautiful, God-centered, humble king. And what do we say? Thanks, but no thanks. Over and over again, the journey of the Israelites is simply that. Thanks, but no thanks. God says this is the way to live you, the way you were created. And we just choose to walk away. It's staggering, really, that God doesn't just throw his hands up in the air and say, that's it. I'm done with the lot of you. But he doesn't. And that's why the Old Testament is so beautiful, because we see the faithfulness of God. We see God allowing them to understand the consequences of the choice that they make, the brokenness and the damage that that causes when we choose to walk away from his best. But we also see God consistently welcoming them back and saying again, here's what it looks like to live the way that you're created to live. All I want is to be in a relationship with you and for you to love each other. It's as simple as that. Well, ultimately, the Israelites are taken into captivity by two other really powerful nations, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And so now emerge a group of people called the prophets. And the prophets are people who speak on behalf of God. And they take on this really, really key role of reminding them about God's story, reminding them about the way that things have unfolded in the past, reminding them where they've come from, but also giving them a sense of hope that God hasn't, God hasn't forgotten them God hasn't given up on them. And in particular, a lot of the prophets refer to this person who's going to come. Again, this Messiah, this rescuer, this saviour who's going to come and make things right. A Messiah who's going to come and bring a new covenant, a new partnership, a new way of understanding what it looks like to live at peace, a new promise, a new relationship. And there are lots and lots of prophecies that we could look at around this, but here are a few examples. The first one is the one that we've read already this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, which we often read around Christmas time. A child is born to us, a son is given to us, and he will be our ruler. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. His royal power will continue to grow. His kingdom will always be at peace. He will rule as King David's successor, basing his power on right and justice from now until the end of time. And so there's this prophecy about this person who's going to come to bring what? Peace. The Prince of Peace, who's going to set up a kingdom of peace. Someone who's going to come from King David's line. Isaiah chapter 53 then says, He endured the suffering that should have been ours, the pain that we should have borne. All the while, we thought that his suffering was punishment sent by God. But because of our sins, he was wounded, beaten because of the evil we did. We're healed by the punishment he suffered, made whole by the blows that he received. This recognition that when this Messiah comes, he's going to come and deal with the punishment for all of the choices that we make where we walk away from God's best. All of the selfishness, all of the evil that we do but ultimately to bring healing and completeness to us. Isaiah 61 then says, The Sovereign Lord has filled me with his spirit. 
He's chosen me and sent me to bring good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to announce release to captives and freedom to those in prison. He sent me to proclaim that the time has come when the Lord will save his people. This is a key passage that we're going to come back to next week when we talk about why Jesus came. Ultimately, this is a fantastic summary of why Jesus came, to bring good news, to heal the brokenhearted, to release the captives, to set us free. Jesus comes to declare that the time has come when the Lord will save, will rescue his people. And then Jeremiah 31 is another great passage that helps us understand a bit more about what this Messiah is going to do. The time is coming when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the old covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. Although I was like a husband to them, they did not keep that covenant. The new covenant I'll make with the people of Israel will be this. I'll put my law within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This beautiful picture that this Messiah is not going to come to set up a whole bunch of laws, extra things that we have to do, but instead actually to put that in our hearts so that we live with love at the centre of who we are, that we make choices that are based on the love that's inside of us that comes from God and that we extend that love to the people around us. So the Old Testament is crucial in our understanding of a whole bunch of different things. But in particular, it helps us understand what doesn't work. It helps us understand that sometimes we chase after all of these other things, thinking that they're God's best when they're not. Laws, land, leaders. It shows us what happens when we're left to our own devices, that far from getting things right, far from getting better and better and better, when we have to follow the rules, we actually get worse and worse. But the Old Testament also helps us to remember that God can use anyone. And it's not about us being amazing superstars. We've got everything together. God can use every single person. We have these beautiful people, Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, people like Esther and Ruth, these amazing people who really had nothing massively significant about them except their willingness to say, God, use me. Their willingness to allow God to work through their lives. And then through the Old Testament, we read about this expectation of this coming rescuer, this waiting, this yearning that the Israelites have of someone who's going to come and make things right once and for all, this deep, deep desire for the Messiah ultimately to come. And all of those prophecies help us to understand why Jesus is so amazing and so remarkable. So as we wrap up our message today and get ready to transition into communion, I want to look at the same question for us to reflect on as we have looked at throughout this series. How does God's story shape my identity and my purpose? How does this part of God's story shape who I am and the reason why I'm here? And to be able to think about that as we head into this week, I want to unpack exactly what we've already talked about that the Israelites chased after. To say, am I pursuing love? as I go about my week, or am I chasing after laws and land and leaders? And so to unpack that, we can think about it this way. Am I pursuing love, or am I craving someone who'll just give me the rules? Someone who'll just tell me, you do these things, don't do these things, and if someone tells me that, then everything's going to be really, really fantastic. 
Is that the desire of my heart? Or am I willing to be challenged about what it looks like to live with love at the centre of who I am? Where there's not necessarily rules, do's and don'ts, but simply an ethic of focusing on what the most loving thing is to do. Am I focused on love or am I craving some more rules that will give me clarity about how I'm supposed to live? Maybe for some of us, it's about chasing after land. We've fallen into this mindset where if I can just get into the right environment, then everything will be really, really great. So if I can just get that promotion, if I can just get that job, if I can just get this project done at home, if I can just get into this relationship, if I can just get this assignment done, if I can just get to this point in my education, if I can just get this amount of security in my life, then everything will be really, really great. The challenge for us is that there's never a point where that is satisfying enough. Because as soon as we get there, two things happen. First of all, we recognise that wasn't actually as satisfying as I thought it was. It didn't complete me after all. And secondly, there's always something else. There's always another job, another promotion, more money, something else to work on, more security that we need in our lives. So, are we chasing after God's love for us, basing our identity on that? Or are we saying, if I can just get the environment right, then I'll be able to live the way that God wants me to? Or thirdly, are we just craving someone who's going to come into our life and be that leader, that guide, a wise person who's going to tell me the things to do, the things to focus on? Now, we've got to be careful with this one because I'm not in any way saying that that's not important. I am 100% a byproduct of the people who've invested in my life. We need each other. We need to be able to journey with each other. But if my starting point is, I just need someone else who's going to tell me how to live. I just need someone else who's going to give me the right advice. Instead of going to Jesus first, then we've got things backwards. The challenge is, do we focus on Jesus his love for us, his teaching, his life, and live out of that and then say, this is what I'm processing. Can you help me with that? That's healthy. But if we put other people in the place that Jesus should be in, then we've got them messed up as well. So as we head into this week, that's the challenge for us, is to say, as I get up every day, is my focus simply on loving God and loving the people around me and then allowing it all to play out? Or are these other things that I'm chasing after that I hope, well, if I can just get that, then everything will be really, really fantastic. So I'm going to pray that as we do head into this week, as we get ready to take some time to reflect around the communion table, that we can be challenged about that. But in the midst of being challenged, that we can be reminded that we're so fortunate. Because I put myself into the shoes of the Israelites and understand what it must have been like to have this expectation, this yearning and this craving. God, please do something to make things right. And we're on the other side of that. Jesus has come and has done everything necessary to make things right. That's amazing that we get to live on the other side of that. So we can celebrate that, but also throw ourselves on him and say, how do I love the way that you love Jesus? Let's pray. God, we thank you again for this beautiful library that you've given us that's called the Bible. We thank you for all of the ways in which those pages weave together this amazing story about who you are, 
about what your purposes are, about the ways in which you continue to journey with us as humanity, even though so often we choose to walk away from you. We thank you in particular this morning for the pages of the Old Testament. There's a lot in there that confuses us. There's a lot in it that frustrates us. But there's also a lot in it that teaches us about what it means to be able to be people who stay faithful to you and about the implications of what happens when we walk away from that. And so we thank you for all of the faithful servants that we see throughout the pages of the Old Testament. All of the people who did to the best of their ability live out a faithful relationship with you. But we thank you that almost all of those people that we read about make mistakes. They're not perfect in any way and yet you are able to use them because that gives us a sense of hope. We don't have to get our lives together. We don't have to be perfect. We just have to surrender ourselves to you. And we thank you for the lessons that we learn through the Old Testament about those things that we chase that are so unfulfilling ultimately. And we pray that as we head into this week, you would help us to know those places in our lives where we're tempted to do the same thing. Instead of just relying on our relationship with you, instead of taking our cues from you, Jesus, instead of focusing on what the most loving thing is to do, that we end up turning and chasing after all of these other things that ultimately are not going to satisfy and ultimately will potentially drag us further away from your best. So as we head into this week, help us to live out of the freedom that you've given us, but help us to live the best way that we possibly can, the way that you created us to live. In your name we pray. Amen.